Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Jeff Scott. I'm co-lead of the firm's securities litigation practice. I'm joined today by Julia Malkina, my partner and fellow co-lead of the firm's securities litigation practice. Today, we'll discuss the Supreme Court's recent decision in the Slack case and the potential important implications for securities litigation. Let's get started. Julia, why don't you give our listeners a brief overview of what we'll discuss today? I would be glad to, Jeff. On June 1st, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in a case called Slack Technologies LLC versus Pirani. The court heard oral argument in Slack on April 17th. The issue before the court was whether Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933 requires plaintiffs to plead and prove that they purchased securities registered under the registration statement they allege is materially false or misleading. Today, we will first discuss the background of the Slack case and some highlights from oral argument before the Supreme Court. Then we will discuss the court's ruling and finally consider the case's implications moving forward. Let's start with some background. Jeff, what do we need to know to understand the question Slack presents? Julia, we should first start with a little background on the Securities Act of 1933. The 1933 Act generally prohibits offering or selling a security to the public that is not registered under a registration statement filed with the SEC unless there is an exemption from registration. Registration statements typically provide a host of information about the company whose securities are being offered or sold. Now, investors may rely on that information when purchasing a company's securities. Section 11 of the 1933 Act creates a private right of action if a registration statement contains a material misstatement or omission. Section 12, in turn, creates a private right of action against a person who offers or sells a security to the public by means of a false or misleading prospectus or oral communication. For our purposes, the important feature of Section 11 is that the private right of action is available only to a person acquiring such security. The key phrase is such security. Ordinarily, the word such refers back to something else that's already been mentioned. For Section 11, however, it is not crystal clear what the word such in such security refers back to. The core issue in Slack, therefore, is whether the phrase such security refers to a security registered under the allegedly false or misleading registration statement, or whether it refers to unregistered securities as well. Like Section 11, Section 12 of the 1933 Act also uses the phrase such security. The same question, therefore, arguably arises. That said, the language of the two provisions differs in certain other respects. Jeff, how have courts prior to Slack interpreted the phrase such security as used in Section 11? Well, Julia, the Second Circuit first interpreted the phrase such security in Section 11 in a case called Barnes versus Osofsky in 1967. Judge Friendly reasoned that the phrase gave rise to two possible competing interpretations. The first more narrow interpretation was that such security meant 
a security issued pursuant to the allegedly false or misleading registration statement. The second broader interpretation was that such security included a security of the same nature as that issued pursuant to the registration statement. Judge Friendly concluded that the more narrow interpretation is, in his words, the more natural meaning of the words based on the statutory scheme, the legislative history, and other sources. Now, during the next 50 years, every court of appeals to consider this issue of statutory interpretation reached the same conclusion as Judge Friendly, including the 1st, 5th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th circuits. As a result, up until the Slack case, for a plaintiff to have standing to sue under Section 11, the securities purchased by the plaintiff had to be traceable to the particular registration statement alleged to be false or misleading. Now, Julia, can you explain to our listeners the significance of this tracing rule when companies go public? Glad to, Jeff. Typically, when a company goes public, it issues new securities pursuant to a registration statement as part of an initial public offering, or IPO. Investment banks underwrite the offering, often by buying the new registered securities at a fixed price and then selling them to investors at a higher price. Existing shareholders, whether they be early investors or employees of the company, are able to sell their pre-existing securities to the public in addition to the new securities being issued. But if all of a company's pre-existing securities and its new securities are sold at the same time, the sheer volume of securities being sold might dilute the market and cause the price of those securities to fall. For that reason, Julia, when a company goes public through an IPO, the underwriter typically negotiates what's called a lockup period, during which persons who hold pre-existing securities, which are often exempt from registration, agree not to sell those securities for a fixed period of time. As a result, only the company's new registered securities are sold during the lockup period. This is important for the Section 11 tracing rule. Generally speaking, most securities trading is done through brokers. However, for various reasons, brokers generally do not keep track of whether particular securities are registered or unregistered. Thus, ordinarily, if registered and unregistered securities are sold at the same time, a Section 11 plaintiff could find it difficult, if not impossible, to plead and prove that the securities they purchased were registered. Because of the such security language in Section 11, the evidentiary issue could mean that the plaintiff cannot prove standing to sue under Section 11. In a typical IPO, the lockup period helps plaintiffs in this regard, because until the lockup expiration or other events such as a secondary offering, all shares trading will typically have been issued pursuant to the IPO registration statement. Now, Julia, can you give a bit of background on how recent rule changes have affected the state of affairs in this area of the case law? Although most companies have historically gone public through an IPO, in 2018, the SEC approved a new method by which a company's securities can start being publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. This new method is known as a direct listing. Through a direct listing, 
a company files a registration statement with the SEC and is then permitted to sell its shares on the exchange. Importantly, a direct listing does not require an underwriter and generally does not involve a lockup agreement. This means the company's existing shareholders can sell their unregistered securities on the first day of public trading at the same time as the company's registered shares are sold. Direct listings thus have potentially significant implications for plaintiff's ability to plead and prove standing to sue under Section 11. Jeff, can you give a bit of background on how the Slack case got to the Supreme Court? Of course, Julia. On June 20th, 2019, Slack used a direct listing to go public. The sale involved placing millions of shares into the market, with roughly 58% of them being unregistered. The plaintiff, Mr. Pirani, purchased 250,000 shares of Slack on the first day of the offering and over the next several months. During that time period, the price of Slack shares decreased from an initial price of $38.50, eventually dropping below $25 per share. In September 2019, the plaintiff filed a putative class action in California District Court under Sections 11 and 12, alleging that Slack's registration statement was false and misleading because it purportedly omitted information about Slack's business and downplayed competition Slack faced. In January 2020, Slack moved to dismiss, arguing, among other things, that plaintiff lacked standing to sue because he could not prove that the shares he purchased were registered under the allegedly misleading registration statement. In October 2020, the district court denied Slack's motion in part, reasoning that the unique circumstance of a direct listing in which registered shares and unregistered shares are sold simultaneously warranted adopting the broad interpretation of the phrase, such security in Section 11, that Judge Friendly in the Barnes case in 1967 had rejected. A divided Ninth Circuit panel affirmed on interlocutory appeal in September 2021. The majority opinion seized on the fact that all shares offered for sale through a direct listing, whether those shares are registered or unregistered, can only be offered for sale upon the filing of an effective registration statement. Accordingly, the majority held that Pirani shares can be traced to Slack's registration statement and should therefore constitute such security under Section 11. The Ninth Circuit decision created a split of authority among courts of appeals regarding the scope of Section 11. The Ninth Circuit majority also held that because Pirani had standing to sue under Section 11, it followed that he also had standing to sue under Section 12. In dissent, Judge Eric Miller would have reversed the district court and remanded with instructions to grant Slack's motion to dismiss. In Judge Miller's view, the interpretation of sections 11 and 12 has been settled for decades, with the phrase such security in section 11 requiring that a plaintiff's securities have been issued under the allegedly false or misleading registration statement. That settled interpretation, he wrote, ought to resolve the case in Slack's favor since Pirani cannot prove that his shares were registered. For Section 12, Judge Miller wrote that its text unambiguously requires a plaintiff to have purchased a registered security to have standing 
meaning Pirani may not bring a Section 12 claim as well. Slack filed a petition for a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court, which the court granted on December 13th, 2022. Jeff, can you share some of the highlights from the Supreme Court oral argument? Absolutely, Julia. Slack was argued before the Supreme Court on April 17th of this year. Overall, the justices' questions and comments suggested that the court would reject the Ninth Circuit's Section 11 ruling as was widely expected by the defense bar. Justice Kavanaugh, for example, commented that to affirm the Ninth Circuit ruling, we would have to depart on Section 11 from a lot of law, starting with Judge Friendly, that's been around for a long time. Likewise, Chief Justice Roberts characterized the reference in Section 11 to such security as a, quote, big hurdle for plaintiff to get over, end quote. Well, Justice Kagan suggested that the plaintiff has, quote, a hard road to hoe here, end quote. That said, it was less clear how the court would rule on the standing issue for Section 12. Justice Kavanaugh, for example, stated that he was, quote, a bit concerned about deciding the Section 12 issue without the SEC weighing in, without more law out there, and without knowing more about that issue. He asked why the court shouldn't just allow the lower courts to sort out the Section 12 issue before the court gives a definitive ruling on it. In the same vein, Justice Gorsuch asked Slack's counsel whether the sky would fall if the court were to answer the Section 11 question in Slack's favor, vacate and remand without addressing the Section 12 question. Justice Kagan's questions and comments, however, suggested that she might think there are, quote, key differences between the language of sections 11 and 12. Jeff, how did the Supreme Court ultimately rule on these issues? Well, Julia, the Supreme Court unanimously reversed the Ninth Circuit's decision and held that section 11 of the 1933 Act requires plaintiffs to plead and prove that he purchased securities registered under the registration statement that he alleged was materially false and misleading. In addition, the Supreme Court declined to interpret Section 12 of the 1933 Act, vacating the Ninth Circuit's judgment as the plaintiff's Section 12 claim for reconsideration in light of the Supreme Court's decision, while cautioning that the two provisions contain distinct language that warrants careful consideration. In doing so, the court noted that it was expressing no views about the proper interpretation of Section 12 or its application to the case. Julia, can you explain to our listeners how the court reached its conclusion on the Section 11 issue? Of course, Jeff. Because the court concluded that Section 11 contains no clear reference telling us what the phrase such security means, the court looked to the context and circumstances. In doing so, the court identified several contextual clues. First, Section 11 imposes liability for false statements or misleading omissions in the registration statement. It uses the definite article, the, to reference the particular registration statement alleged to be misleading. It therefore seems to suggest that the plaintiff must acquire such security under that document's terms. Second, Section 11 repeatedly uses the word such. For example, it speaks of such part of the registration statement containing a misstatement or misleading omission 
and such untruth or omission found in the registration statement. These other uses of the word such suggest that the phrase such security refers to a security registered under the particular registration statement alleged to contain a falsehood or misleading omission. Third, other sections of the 1933 Act suggest the phrase such security refers to registered securities. For example, Section 11E caps damages against an underwriter in a Section 11 suit to the total price at which the securities underwritten by him and distributed to the public were offered to the public. It thereby ties the maximum available recovery to the value of the registered securities alone, which would make little sense if Section 11 liability extended to unregistered securities as well. Collectively, these contextual clues persuaded the court that Slack's interpretation of Section 11 was the better one. I agree with that, Julia. The court declined to endorse Plano's broader interpretation because he failed to explain what the limits of his interpretation would be, how those limits could be derived from Section 11, and more generally, how to square his interpretation with the various contextual clues suggesting that liability runs with registered shares alone. Moreover, the court rejected plaintiff's policy-based argument that adopting a broader interpretation of the phrase such security in Section 11 would expand liability for falsehoods and misleading omissions, thereby better accomplishing the purpose of the 1933 Act. In the court's view, plaintiff's account of the law's purpose is not altogether obvious. Rather, the 1933 Act, according to the court, is limited in scope. It imposes strict liability on issuers for material falsehoods or misleading omissions in a registration statement. In contrast, Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and SEC Rule 10B-5 allow suits involving any sale of the security, whether under a registration statement or not, but only with proof of scienter. The court held that this design suggests that Congress may have sought to create, in their words, a balanced liability regime, allowing a narrow class of claims to proceed on lesser proof under Section 11, but requiring a higher standard of proof to sustain a broader set of claims under the 1934 Act. A narrow interpretation of the phrase such security in Section 11 which had prevailed since Judge Friendly's Barnes decision in 1967, thus would better accomplish the 1933 Act's purpose. Julia, what are some of the implications of the ruling on Section 11? First and foremost, the ruling is a win for securities litigation defendants. It reaffirms the longstanding interpretation of Section 11, requiring Section 11 plaintiffs to plead and prove that their securities were registered under the registration statement they claim is false or misleading. This is a potentially powerful defense in Section 11 cases arising from a direct listing. As we've discussed, brokers' current practices mean that plaintiffs may face insurmountable barriers in attempting to trace their securities to a registration statement in a direct listing where both registered and unregistered securities were offered for sale on the first day of public trading. That said, 
plaintiffs who cannot prove that their shares were registered under the allegedly false or misleading registration statement may still seek to bring claims under Section 10B of the 1934 Act, although they will need to plead and prove scientar, among other elements. Companies should therefore remain vigilant in ensuring the accuracy of their public statements relating to direct listings, including in registration statements. Julie, I think it is also important to note that direct listings, at least as we sit here today, remain rare. Since 2018, little more than a dozen companies have entered the public market by way of a direct listing. Conversely, there were nearly three dozen IPOs conducted in the first quarter of 2023 alone, even though it is widely known that the IPO market has been quite tepid. As a result, at this point, the universe of plaintiffs and defendants that could be affected by the court's decision remains limited. Now, that said, Julia, the court's decision could potentially encourage more companies to go public through a direct listing in the future because it confirms that companies choose to go public by direct listing of both registered and unregistered shares have stronger defenses against Section 11 liability than do companies who go public by traditional IPOs. Finally, the court's ruling on Section 11 may encourage legislative efforts to improve tracking of the ownership and registration of securities, including through the use of blockchain technology. These efforts might build off of laws like Sections 219 and 224 of Delaware's General Corporation Law, which permit companies in that state to maintain stock ledgers using blockchain technology. By implementing such technology, which could potentially track the full ownership history of individual securities, it could become much easier to prove whether a plaintiff's securities were registered or not. Julia, what are some implications of the court's ruling on Section 12? It remains to be seen, Jeff, whether courts will interpret the phrase such security in Section 12 in the same way the Supreme Court interpreted that phrase in Section 11. Oral argument before the Supreme Court suggested that some justices, notably Justice Kagan, might think that Section 12 could be interpreted differently. But the court's discussion of Congress's possible intent to create a balanced liability regime may suggest that Section 12, which imposes strict liability, like Section 11, ought to be narrowly interpreted. Other questions at oral argument also followed in that same vein. In the meantime, defendants facing Section 12 claims can seek to dismiss such claims where plaintiffs fail to plead that the securities they purchased are traceable to the registration statement alleged to be false or misleading. Great. Thank you so much, Julia. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you for joining me and Julia for this installment of SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Thank you.